I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Well, in November of 1994, Sports Illustrated published an article entitled, The High Cost of Glory, which told the sad story of Kurt Marsh. Kurt Marsh was an All-American offensive lineman for the University of Washington. And while he was in college, many considered him to be the best lineman in the country. He was so good that the Oakland Raiders picked him up in the first round. He was the 23rd pick overall. But unfortunately, pro football was not kind to Marsh after his rookie season, he suffered injuries that would plague him for the next six years. Pro football took such a toll on his body that he was forced to retire in 1987. By the time he retired, Marsh had endured 12 operations, including four on his right ankle and right foot. After retirement, Marsh's problems were were only really beginning. For seven more years, he was tormented with chronic pain and numerous surgical procedures. By 1994, Marsh's right leg was in such bad shape that he had no choice but to surgically remove it eight inches below his knee. He was later quoted as saying, I'm so grateful for my football successes, but I'm paying for it every day. When asked, was it worth it? Marsh says, probably not, but he said, even knowing what he knows now, he would do it all over again. He believed that. There were many athletes just like Marsh. This story, while surprising, is not unique. Statistics tell us that the average NFL career last less than four years, and that 40% of all NFL players retire due to injury. So there have been similar stories like Marsh, and many of them ask the same question. Knowing what you know now, would you do anything different? And they all respond with no. We hear that, some of us, and we kind of just shake our heads in disbelief. Somebody needs their head examined, right? But, but here's the truth of the matter. There are many who hear this story and they reason in this way. Oh, well, it's his leg. It's his life. He can do with it what he wants. You probably heard this before, right? I'm sure this was Marsh's mentality after the third or fourth surgery when the doctors were telling him it's time to retire. I'm sure he thought to himself, hey, this is my body. It's my life if I want to risk it all. For football, I will. 
We hear this kind of reasoning all the time in our world today, don't we? People who say, I can live how I want to live because this is my life. This is my body. If I want to do drugs, I'll do them. If I want to have sex outside of marriage with multiple partners, I'll have it. If I don't want to keep this baby, I'll get rid of it. Why? This is my life. This is my body. My body, my choice, my body. Is it really your body? If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 6. This morning we are ending our five-week study entitled The Five Alones of Christianity. As we've said already, today is Reformation Sunday. Tomorrow is Reformation Day. Martin Luther, October the 31st, 1517. He was a theology professor at the time. He posted a writing to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. That served as the community bulletin board of the day. And, and he wrote that writing in Latin so that the scholars, that was the language of the scholars, he was wanting them to have a good discussion about the practices and teachings in the church that did not align with what Scripture taught. And instead of opening the door for Luther in dialogue, which was what Luther thought would happen, they, they closed the door on Luther. And what resulted from that was the spread of Protestantism and the spread of Protestant congregations across, across Europe. And we have been saying throughout this study that we as believers, we as a church, we're a, we're a product, a result of this great reformation that took place. We should focus on it every year. We should praise God for the work that he did through them. We don't realize that we stand on the backs of elephants to have the view we have today. We just pick up our English Bibles and don't think anything about it as we come to church each day, not knowing that William was burned at the stake for translating the Scriptures into English. His body was blown apart. They put gunpowder in what, what they packed in around him. They lit it on fire and blew his body to pieces. He did that so that we could have the Bible in the English language. We, we need to realize that. Praise God for that work and for that sacrifice each and every day. The reason we have the Bible in our language, and we encourage you to read it, study it for yourself, it all comes as a result of the great reformation that took place. And there are several key doctrines that were reintroduced during the time of Luther and other reformers that the church at this time desperately needed to relearn. The church had strayed from the core teachings of the Christian faith. So Luther and others like him, they, they went back to the scriptures and reintroduced these teachings. We have looked at many already. We have looked at sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Last week we looked at solus Christus, which is Latin for Christ alone. And today we're going to end with the, uh, the, the last Latin phrase. I promise I'll, I'll teach you for a while. Soli Deo Gloria, which is Latin for to the glory of God alone. In the 1500s, the life of people in the church had become complex and compartmentalized. Many viewed life in two separate realms. You have the sacred life of the monks and the church leaders, and you have the secular life of the average everyday person. 
But as Luther and the Reformers studied the Scriptures, they came to the realization that life is not to be compartmentalized in this way. They believed and taught that all of life is to be centered upon God. They said that, that God is to be supreme in every aspect of a believer's life. And they didn't just pull this out of thin air. They got it from the Word of God. Scripture clearly teaches this. Your verse for the week in your study guide 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. John MacArthur, when speaking on this verse, said this verse is the bottom line on the Christian life. It absolutely is. Here Paul tells us the primary reason we are put on this earth, if you're here this morning and, and maybe here for the first time and you're wondering what this life is all about, God tells us in his word, the reason we are here is to glorify God in all we do. We're to know him and we're to glorify him with the lives we live for him. We come to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. He has gone to great lengths so we can know him and live life for him. This is important for us to, to remember today, isn't it? It's an important reminder for us that all life is to be lived for the glory of God because we too have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives. We think of Sunday morning, 10 a.m. as spiritual time and Monday through Saturday as secular time. We may not word it in that way, but we show we believe that by the way in which we live. But notice Paul tells us we're not to be divided like this as believers. He says, whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. That's what we are put on this earth to do. We are put on this earth to bring glory to God. We are put on this earth to know God and to live for Him. We are put on this earth to honor God with our lives. We are put on this earth to bow our hearts and our lives before Him and surrender our lives to Him. That's the reason you're here. It's the reason you're here. We're going to learn that message this morning in verses 12 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 6. Now, we're jumping in in chapter 6. We don't normally do that. We just take a book and go chapter by chapter on through, but we're jumping into chapter 6, so I need to bring you up to speed with where we are in the book of, of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, and that church was an absolute mess. For those who you hear say, man, we got to get back to the way the church was in the first century. Surely you don't mean Corinth. Please tell me you don't. Corinth was a mess, and Paul planted it. So all the people who go on and on about all the problems the church has today, Paul's churches had problems, and he didn't quit on them. He invested in them. We're too quick to quit on the church, aren't we? I'm going into another sermon already. But it's true. We are so quick to quit on the church. The littlest thing, I'm out. Paul never said, I'm out. He was invested in them. But they were messed up. They were very, very messed up. While they had been saved, they had been called out, set apart from this wicked and godless city, the city of Corinth. Many of them were still allowing, see if this sounds familiar, they were still allowing these old influences from their ungodly past to impact their new life in Christ. In chapter 6, we learn 
that the Christians in Corinth, among other things, were struggling with sexual sins. So Paul writes to them here to address this issue and to call for them to live differently and to be set apart, reminding them of who they are in Christ and prompting them to live holy lives. They thought their lives and their bodies were their own and they thought they had the freedom to do whatever they wanted to do with their bodies, but we're going to learn in this text of Scripture this morning that that reasoning that says, my body, my choice, this is my body, I can do whatever I want, that is unbiblical. Truth is, my body, your body, our bodies, this body, get this, it's God's body. And because that is true, we are to honor God with it. We are to live our lives to make Him look great. We are to live our lives to bring glory to God alone. And in the following verses, Paul is going to explain to us how we, in fact, do that. He is going to tell us how to honor God with our bodies and bring glory to Him. First, he tells us that if we want to honor God with our bodies, if we want to bring glory to God in the way we live, then we must first, number one, reject worldly philosophies that enslave the body. Reject worldly philosophies that enslave the body. Like we've said already, the Corinthians were easily influenced by the world around them. While many of them had given their lives to the Lord, they were still allowing their ungodly beliefs and teachings from their pagan past to influence their new life in Christ. This was especially true when it came to sex. Like I've told you already, Corinth was a godless city. Not only was it filled with materialistic, corrupt, power-hungry types of people, but also it was filled with, with sexual perversion all throughout the city. In this city, sexual immorality was as common a practice as eating and drinking. The moral reputation of the Corinthians was so bad that the word Corinth was used synonymously with, with sexual immorality. The word Corinthianzomai translated to behave like a Corinthian, was, was often used to refer to sexually immoral activity. It was one and the same. And also, the, the Corinthians, like, like many in our world today, they had the attitude of, what's the big deal? It's only sex. We hear this type of reasoning in our world today, don't we? And unfortunately, over time, these ungodly philosophies began to make their way into the church. And this was happening in Corinth. And so Paul writes to them to warn them that these philosophies are ungodly and they carry with them disastrous consequences. So let's take a moment to look at the philosophies that many of them were, were living by that were threatening the health of the church at Corinth. First, many of the Christians at, at Corinth, they shared this mentality, worldly philosophy number one, I'm free to do what I want. Sound familiar? Little Rolling Stones theology. I'm free to do what I want. Many of the Corinthians, they, they reasoned in this way. Look at verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now, notice the quotation marks around the phrase, all things are lawful for me. We also see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 as well. The quotation marks were added by the translator to indicate this was probably a commonly used slogan 
by the, the Corinthians at this time. They were living by this philosophy, all things are lawful. In, in, in other words, because Christ has removed the penalty of sin from my life, I'm free to live however I want to live. Some of y'all have heard this. They believe that to be the definition of Christian liberty. Some in the church thought if you want to sin a little, no big deal. Jesus has covered that. He's taken away the, the penalty for that sin. You're free to live as you want. And the Corinthians were, they, were, they would reason in this way and they would say, we're, we're, we're not immoral. We're not completely immoral. We're, we're, we're just free in Christ. We're, we're not ungodly. We're just under God's grace. No longer under the law. We're under grace. And, and many work that logic out to mean that they can live however they want as a Christ follower. Notice Paul gives some credibility to the phrase, all things are lawful, but he qualifies it by saying, but not all things are helpful or profitable. In other words, you are free. You're free to make decisions. But Paul knows there are certain decisions that people make, certain activities that, that, that people are involved in that are sinful and godless and immoral, and they carry with them severe consequences. Like with Adam and Eve, while they were free, to eat of any tree of the garden. They were warned about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, told not to eat from it, but, but they were allowed to eat from it. They, they ate from it, and from that sin, they are separated from God, and the world is ruined and wrecked because of that sin. Paul is giving his readers here a similar word of warning. He's making the point, while you're free to make decisions, and while your sin can even be forgiven, the price to pay is terribly high. Consequences linger, even beyond forgiveness. Many of you have experienced that, haven't you? Sin never brings profit. It always brings pain. It always brings heartache. It always brings loss. And this is especially true when you're talking about sins of a sexual nature, which is what the Christians at Corinth were struggling with. Sexual sins can and have ripped marriages apart, shattered homes destroyed, the Christian witness tore the church apart, local churches apart. The price to pay is terribly high. In the second half of, of verse 12, Paul qualifies this Corinthian catchphrase once again by saying, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul says, while you're free to do what you want, there are certain activities, if you give yourself over to those, they will enslave you. We have learned that in the book of Judges, right? Their sins enslaved them. This was happening in Corinth. They were flying under the banner of Christian freedom and thought that they, they, they claimed to be in control of the situation. They were living their lives on the edge, spiritually running their liberty way out to the edge where a fall is likely and they were falling into sin. While they acted as if they were in the driver's seat, 
They were in fact slaves to their own desires. That's why Paul gives them this warning here in verse 12. He makes the point that while believers are free to make their own decisions, while they are free to do what they want, not every decision leads to true freedom. Some lead to bondage. Scripture tells us time and time again, those who are truly free are those who are able to resist these urges by the power of the Spirit in accordance with the Word and live for God through the power of the Spirit. That is true freedom. Did you know that? Those who are free, they have self-control. Those who are free can say no. That's what Christian liberty is. It's freedom from sin, not freedom to partake in sin. Let's be honest, if it meant freedom to partake in sin, who needs the Holy Spirit for that? That's what we did before we were saved. Freely partook in sin. No, freedom in Christ means that we now, by His help, through the power of His Spirit, are able to resist sin. Second philosophy that was threatening the church is this. I am to obey my urges. Look at the first part of verse 13. Paul says here, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Again, notice the quotations. Added by the translators later on, Paul is quoting another Corinthian motto. Many in Corinth believed that sex was just a natural biological urge the same as eating and drinking. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. When you feel the urge to have sex, you go find someone and do it. Sounds a lot like our culture, doesn't it? This is the view of many in our our world today. We, We have been told it's not sinful, it's biological. Here's the problem with that logic. God sets us apart from animals in His Word, does He not? While we are created by God, we are created as human beings in the image of God to be image bearers of His. Paul also tells us that man is more than a biological urge. He says God will destroy both one with the other. Now when Paul talks about God will destroy both one with the other, he's referring back to the statement that he made about food and stomachs, meaning these biological urges such as hunger and thirst will one day be done away with. When we as believers are in the presence of God in the life to come, we will have all we need. So to say that man is nothing more than a biological urge is just not true. We're so much more. We're so much more. There's a third worldly philosophy that Paul addresses, and it's this. Look at it. I can treat my body as I please. We hear people use this logic all the time today. Many in the church have bought into this way of thinking. He or she can do whatever he or she wants with their body. It's their body. Not biblical. Not biblical. In fact, God tells us all the time throughout His Word what we can and can't do with our bodies. Doesn't He? He absolutely does. Listen to what Paul says here. He he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Paul's telling us what to do with our bodies. Right there. 
Paul, under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, is telling us what we can and what we cannot do with our bodies. He said the body's not meant for that. It's not meant for sexual immorality. The truth is, this body is not our own. We are not free to do with it whatever we want. It's God's body. Well, after addressing some of the negative worldly philosophies dealing with the body, Paul goes on to give us some helpful biblical philosophies that, that benefit the body. While we are to reject worldly philosophies that enslave the body, point number two, we're to accept biblical philosophies that liberate the body. The first philosophy that Paul calls for his readers to accept is this. Look at it, point number one. Biblical philosophy number one. Your body is for God. Mark that down, write that down, put it in a place where you see it every day. Your body is God's body. Your body is for God. It's for God. We mentioned this just a moment ago, but look at it again, verses 13 into verse 14. Paul says, your body is not meant for sexual immorality, but what? But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Folks, this teaching in our world today that says this body is our body is just not true. Our body is God's body. He made it. He redeemed it. You can't, as a Bible-believing Christian, argue, this is my body. It's not biblically. You didn't make it. You didn't redeem it. And guess what? You're not going to resurrect it. It's God's body, therefore you are to be a good steward of what he has given you. God did not give you this body to do with it whatever you want. He gave it to you to honor him, bring glory to him, worship him, and obey him. Let's look at the second biblical philosophy Paul gives. Your sin involves Christ. Very, very important point that Paul makes here. Many reason in this way. They say, my, my sin is my sin. Doesn't affect anybody else. We, we've addressed this, right? So the, the great lie that, that Satan dupes us into believing, my sin does not affect anyone else. Listen, when you sin, you don't sin on an island somewhere. You sin in the context of family. You sin in the context of church. You sin in the context of community. It affects all of those connected to you, everyone around you. And Paul says that... that it affects your, your relationship with the Lord as well. Look at, look at what he says in verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In other words, when you are saved, you are joined with Christ. Your body is joined with him. Every believer is a member of his body. He also says in verse 17 of this chapter, Paul says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We are one in Christ. Paul says that because... He says, because this is the case, when you sin, you are in a real way involving Christ in the process. Not that he is sinning with you, but in a sense, you're taking him along with you. Look at what Paul says in the second half of verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. See, they were involved in temple activity in the church, they were involved in wicked temple activity, which involved temple prostitution. Can you imagine? We've got problems here. I'm glad we don't have that problem. They were having some serious issues. 
But Paul basically says here, because your body is one in Christ, are you then going to go and take Christ and be with the prostitute? Some of you hear that and you're disgusted by even the visual there. That's good. If you are, you're getting Paul's point. Paul wants your stomachs to be turned by this. Any sexual immorality, by the way, will apply here because you're one with Christ. Whatever activity you engage in, you are connecting Jesus to it because he is present with you. Think about it in that way. It's a good point Paul makes. That's why it's so terrible when you run off into sexual sin because in a very real way you're bringing Christ along because he is so connected with us and because our bodies are one with him. So for, for, for those of you who think what I'm doing is not affecting anyone else, think again. Look at biblical philosophy number three. Your immoral actions have spiritual consequences. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul shows us here once again that sex is more than just a biological thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a physical union and it's a spiritual union. It unites people in a deep and spiritual way. That's why in the Old Testament it is said if a man slept with a woman and they're not married, they are to be, they are to be married. That's why the Bible says that no, no adultery. We're not to commit adultery because... In the, in the sexual act, what's consummated is a spiritual union. That's what Paul is saying there. So Paul is telling them, those of you all who have been joined to prostitutes, you are one flesh now with that prostitute. You have united with them on a deep spiritual level. So while society says, no big deal, it's casual, it's natural, it's biological, God's word says it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And if it's not done the way it was intended within the confines of marriage, it's a big deal. It's immoral. It's a perversion. That's why Paul says in verse 18, look at it, flee. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Let me tell you what flee means here. Flee means flee. It means run. Some of you may be thinking, well, that's not very polite. I don't care. Run what God says but that person needs some counsel you do too and they don't need it by you get out of there that's about the simplest application that you'll find in the scriptures run away literally run away run away from sexual immorality also says every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body what, what Paul is getting at here is that the, the sin of sexual immorality, it cuts deeper than other offenses. It absolutely does. And I, I think we would agree, like, while sin is the great equalizer, meaning any sin sets us apart for God and, and, and makes us in desperate need of forgiveness from God and restoration to Him, different sins have, are, 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 there's a variety of severity when it comes to consequences of, of sin. And we see that with sexual sin. It's severe, the consequences that come from that, so much so that it needs to be avoided like the plague. Here's the next biblical philosophy that Paul addresses 
Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So important. So important. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. Paul is saying here, your body is a temple because it is indwelt with the very Spirit of God. You see, while Christ came, He's Emmanuel, right? God with us. The Holy Spirit is also God with us, but He's also God in us. The Spirit of God, as a believer, He has taken up residence in your heart and life. Your body is a temple. Houses the Holy Spirit. He says that to make the point just like you wouldn't go out and commit a sexually immoral act in God's temple. Listen, you shouldn't do it anywhere because you're God's temple. That's what he's saying. I love the way Paul ends this passage. He ends with a great summary statement like that of 1 Corinthians 10.31. This passage, too, is the bottom line on the Christian life. Look at verse 19. You are not your own. Underline that. Highlight that. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's it. That's the point of this passage. That is the bottom line on the Christian life. What is to be our philosophy on life? How are we to live accordingly as followers of Christ? Paul tells us, he says, believers, you are not your own. Your body, our bodies, this body is not yours. It has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, what are we to do with our bodies? We're to honor God with our bodies. We're to obey God with our bodies. We're to praise God with our bodies. We're to glorify God with our bodies bodies. We are to live our lives to the glory of God alone. Everything we do in this life as believers, we are to do it for God's glory. He created us and he redeemed us for that reason. Let me end with this. The Bible is clear. We will one day stand before God and all of us are going to be in one of two groups. We will either stand alone and be condemned for the sinners we are and for the deeds that we have done in our body, or we will stand with Christ and we will be welcomed into God's kingdom with open arms, not because of who we are and not because of what we've done in this body, but because of who Christ is and because of the work that he has done in his body on our behalf. You're here this morning. You don't have Christ's person and work applied to your life. I pray that would happen this very morning. I pray right here, right now, you would turn from your life of sin and you would fall before the feet of King Jesus and that you would place your faith and trust in Him and in Him alone, in His person and work alone for your salvation and be saved today. I pray you would do that today. Let's pray together.